listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program. Thank you for spending some of your time with us this hour. How are you feeling today? I feel impeachy. Just impeachy. Later on in the program, we will take you to Washington for those impeachment hearings and what's going on as we move towards a vote later on today. And it's expected that the vote will come just as the president is speaking at a giant rally. All of that should come together for just an absolute storm of wonderful political news. So we're going to get into that. Also, we're going to talk about boomers. If you have a home, is it time to cash out? Okay, boomer. If you're heading towards retirement, let's say in the next maybe 10 years or so, and you're thinking of maybe downsizing, is it time to think to yourself, well, the housing market has been on a great run, time to get out while the getting's good. Okay, boomer. Details on that coming right up, but we begin with this. Is this funny to you? Does this make you laugh? It's a tweet from This Hour Has 22 Minutes, and it goes as follows. This is the tweet. Quote, Ontario Premier Doug Ford says he will not run for the leader of the Conservative Party, but he will run for a hot dog dangling from a string. that make you laugh? Anybody? Bueller? Now, I'll tell you who's not laughing about that is the Director of Communications for Doug Ford. Larissa Whaler, Ford's Director of Comms, tweeting in response, Two sets of rules! One for Premier Ford and one for everyone else. We all can take a joke, but this type of humor is pathetic and wouldn't be tolerated for literally anyone else. Gutter humor. Do better. You used to be funnier. That is the response from the Director of Communications for Doug Ford in response to a This Hour Has 22 Minutes joke. Kind of a bit of a, would you call that a fat joke? It's a bit of a fat joke. Now just ask yourself, if this hour had 22 minutes, or whatever it's called, I forget because it's irrelevant really, but if that program had tweeted out something about Andrea Horvath and maybe chasing a shortbread, I think that would be, Sheba, my producer, has given me the stop, do not go further. She's given me the wave off, abort landing. <laughs> Could get myself into some trouble. But you get my point here. Sheba, am I in trouble here? Am I heading into some rough territory? I think fat shaming on all accords is wrong. So do you, you you think this running for a hot dog dangling from a string, does that make you laugh? I saw you giggle a little. Oh, it's hilarious. Okay, so you think it's funny, but that's not fat shaming? That's, you shouldn't. Why aren't you outraged about that? You should be outraged! It's hilarious, but it's wrong. <laughs> and that's what makes it funny. All right, thank you, Sheba. Let's get to the CAMH story as we begin our hour. The changes of 12 recommendations made by a panel have now been accepted by the head of the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Among those changes, that there will be a new area for uh, patients. This all comes after a number of people escape from the hospital's forensic facility. Zebin Kong, perhaps the most famous, a patient at the hospital who escaped in July and fled to China after he was found not criminally responsible, or NCR, for second-degree murder of his roommate. So among the recommendations, the immediate development, as I mentioned, of a secure outdoor area, better communication with police, electronic management of passes to reduce the number of disappearances. Will that restore public faith in this institution, and will it help the public understand NCR? 
Adelstein Brown chaired this review, and he joins me now on the line. Thank you so much for joining me on the program. Thank you. Let's begin with two of the points that you had in your executive summary that I want to look at. One, this is number three from the executive summary, immediately create a memorandum of understanding that specifies the information that can be shared between CAMH and Toronto Police and time phrase, frames within which it must be shared, the goal to ensure timely and safe return of patients. That seems to me to be fairly broad. What is your understanding of what would be successful and a successful implementation implementation of that? Sure, thanks. So, you know, one of the challenges in looking at the whole NCR issue is that there is uh, legislation around uh, how we deal with uh, police services, legislation around how we deal with health services. And for everyone, you know, we always think first about the privacy and security of our health information. That leads to sometimes a little bit of confusion, uh, where uh, police need information when someone has uh, absconded from care, and they need that information quickly. And it's not always clear, I think, to anyone working in the system what information can be shared and who it can be shared by. Uh, So what we suggested is to create this MOU uh, so that that's really clear. It's really clear to the staff at the hospital, and it's really clear to the police as well. And that then really will help the police do their job much more quickly uh, and as effectively as, they, uh, as they'd like to. And should that MOU be made public? Sure. I don't think that would be a challenging MOU in any way. And I think all that uh, sort of information would always be available under freedom of information as well. So there's no problem with it. Because I think some of the problem for the public is that there's not really a clear understanding about those rules and regulations. And there's concern that the the Institute, CAMH, is not notifying police in a timely manner that protects public uh, safety. Right, but I think that's, that's a pretty insightful comment. When we've been working through all of this, it's pretty clear the whole NCR system is one of the most poorly understood aspects uh, of our whole health system. And after meetings or classes or uh, even just talking to people on the street, types of questions that we get uh, show that really there's poor understanding right across the general public and other places of how the system functions and what it does well and, and where it could do better. That brings me to the comments by the Premier after Mr. Kong left for China. I believe it was nutcase was one of the terms that he used. He used a number of terms and then defended them, saying that there is, you know, no one would want this man living beside them. And that brings me to number 10 in your executive summary. Work with the media to promote a better understanding of forensic mental health system and its role in public protection. Sure. Is there any understanding do you think, of NCR in the public, considering the Premier's comments as well? So I, I think that it is a really sort of challenging thing to explain to people because it involves the courts, it involves the Ontario Review Board, it involves the hospitals, and a whole cascade of responsibilities and, and options. What was really, I think, important for us as we were doing our work is looking at papers, for instance, that say, you know, when we study this, the rate of reoffending for people who've gone through care uh, who've gotten healthy and have been reintegrated back in the community, it's about 20%. The rate of reoffending for someone who's been put into the prison system who has a mental illness is about 70%. So this system overall works really well and actually does improve community safety. But, but you can see sort of throughout the whole report, whether it's the first question you asked or some of the other recommendations, we're constantly refocusing on how we communicate performance and how we make sure that people understand how it's working uh, and also what the opportunities for improvement are. The fact that CAMH has said it will immediately implement your recommendations, do you think that will restore public confidence in that institution? I think with uh, constant communication around this, it'll help. 
I also think, you know, reports like this, particularly the way it's been made public, help to explain the system a bit and actually help to reduce the stigma around uh, mental illness in, in general, which is really important. We, we had another news report at the beginning of the news about a, another person who had been found NCR and is now accused of of murder through arson. These sort of things come up again and again in the news cycle. How do we get a greater understanding of NCR when we talk about it? Sure. So, again, you know, I think looking at the numbers is interesting. So I, I can only talk about the uh, numbers for the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. People absconding uh, as part of a pass out into the community, for example, that's a rare event. That's about one absconding in about every 3,000 passes. Uh, that's also, most of those abscondings are just a little bit late uh, reporting back, about a third of them. So there's, you know, it's a very, very rare event uh, when someone absconds. At least within the CAMH data, the risk of a violent thing happening is exceedingly rare. Uh, and so if you look back over more than a decade's worth of data that we were able to look at, there's only been one uh, violent incident, which was one of the high-profile incidents over the summer. Adelstein Brown shared the review into CAMH and today news that CAMH will adopt the recommendations in that report. Thank you so much for being on the program today. Thank you. Well, the back and forth continues between the province of Ontario and the city of Hamilton, with the province now saying that the mayor of Hamilton did in fact know all about the cost overruns to the Hamilton LRT that was abruptly cancelled this week in a chaotic manner by the provincial government, where the Minister of Transportation travelled to Hamilton to hold a press conference and had to abruptly cancel that press conference, come back to Toronto and basically speak to the media about the cancellation at Queen's Park. Now, what the minister says is that they had a review completed to look at the cost of the project, and that review came back and said, no, it's not $1 billion, no, it's not $3 billion, in fact, it's $5.6 billion, and once the government had a look at that number, oh my goodness, just knock us over, and they decided, well, we just can't go forward. Well, there's a lot of people who say, well, I don't know if we believe that, so how about you show us that report? And the Minister of Transportation has said in response, can't do that. It contains information that is private. It's private information. It's too sensitive. It's on a need-to-know basis. Of course, this reminds me right away of the gas plant scandal, because you recall that when the Liberal government canceled those two gas plants, in committee afterwards... The committee members said, well, we want to see all the email pertaining to this cancellation and the negotiation with the companies for the cancellation. The government said, we can't do that. That's too sensitive. It's too sensitive. Except for in that case, it was a minority situation. So because you have a minority, you have a a majority of opposition members, more opposition members and government members on the committee. And they said, no, no, too bad. So sad. Give us the details. Give us the email. And that is what cost Dalton McGinty his job. In this case, we're not going to see those details. So when the government says, no, we're not going to give you the report, there's no mechanism to force the government to turn it over or to show the public where are the numbers, where's the proof that it's $5.5 million or billion dollars or quadrillion dollars. Who can count anymore? This weekend on Focus Ontario, the mayor of Hamilton, with some strong words for the provincial government. Here's that interview. Mr. Mayor, you have called this a betrayal 
by the Ford government to the people of Hamilton. Why use such strong language? Well, because that's exactly what it is, uh, Alan. Uh, the, we, we had the Premier of the, uh, the province of Ontario, this current Premier, after the municipal election say that uh, the, uh, the, the candidate that uh, ran on LRT and uh, was successful uh, deserves to get their LRT. He believed in the democratic process at that point and said uh, the people of Hamilton had spoken, it's time to move on and get this LRT done. Uh, second to that, uh, Minister Furick, er, Uric came to town uh, not long after, uh, after they put a freeze on all property acquisition in the province and came to specifically to Hamilton and said, we're going to lift the freeze on that property acquisition and we're going to go full steam ahead on the LRT. And so uh, they've been leading us along that this project was in good shape, that there was no issue uh, going forward uh, up until the, you know, very, very recently when they came to us with some high-level benchmark numbers from projects across the province that costs were rising and uh, increasing and uh, we asked them at that point in time give us specifics and let us have at those numbers so we can understand uh, what it is you're talking about and at that point we never got to that point they canceled the project on Monday before we can even get those uh, questions answered. I want to play for you the central reasoning and the central reason that the Ford government is giving for canceling the project. Here is the Minister of Transportation talking about the ballooning price tag. We thought it was a billion dollars. We find out it's $5.5 billion. And so it's incredibly frustrating and with a heavy heart that I went to Hamilton today to speak to the mayor. I know this project is important to him and to a number of people in the city of Hamilton. Mr. Mayor, could you react to the numbers that the Ford government is giving? Well, I mean, the, uh, the, the fact that they're equating a billion dollars to $5.5 billion is totally uh, erroneous and irrational. That's a 450% increase. Uh, that, that's just not possible. Uh, what they are doing, though, is uh, ignoring the fact that they would have known that there were, uh, that there were life cycle cast, uh, costs associated with this project that, would far, that were well above the, the billion dollars that the province had, uh, previous province had committed to, and this province should, should be aware of, and they, I'm sure, were aware of. They've also introduced into that operating and maintenance costs that were the responsibility of the City of Hamilton. And we've always accepted that responsibility and never considered it to be part of the project cost and responsibility of the province of Ontario. So they're paying, playing fast and loose with the numbers here. Uh, there's no possible way this has gone from a billion to 5.5 billion all by itself just in capital costs. Uh, what they fail to tell you is that your Ontario and Mississauga also went over budget in terms of capital cost it also has a life cycle cost attached to it over the 30-year life of the project same issue happened here in Hamilton why are they picking on Hamilton why is it that uh, they're not providing the same level of scrutiny to the other projects uh, in other locations 5.5 billion dollars going to the city of Toronto for three subway station stops fully funded by the province of Ontario so why are they getting that full funding uh, commitment and the city of Hamilton is not what kind of sunk costs do we have in this project that has now been cancelled? Uh, there's uh, about $180 million of uh, design and land acquisition costs that has been uh, done uh, up until uh, recently. Uh, so again, the land acquisition has been continuing until, uh, until yesterday when they announced that this was ended. There are some 60 properties that have been acquired through a willing buyer, willing seller basis and we were heading towards expropriation for the balance. So the grand total between the design work, uh, some of the underground service work and uh, locates that have been done throughout the corridor, 
and the acquisition of property uh, amounts to about $180 million of costs already borne by this project. The government says it will continue with its promise of $1 billion. How can you go forward with any kind of project? I mean, I'm just wondering about the working relationship going forward. Well, it's going to be difficult, but uh, you know we're all uh, big people, and uh, you know we should be uh, you know wise enough and smart enough to uh, come to the table. And uh, we're, we're at this moment in time still going to fight for LRT, uh, but uh, you know a billion dollars uh, all, all by itself, without any life cycle costs, uh, does not get us uh, very much in terms of uh, a transit project. Uh, we may have to start looking at alternative transit projects like BRT, uh, potentially with electrified buses. I think it's a little premature to go down that road, but. The reality is that uh, it was assessed by Metrolinx uh, some 12 years ago, uh, a business, uh, benefits case analysis was done uh, between LRT, BRT and regular transit and LRT was seen to be the, the, the most beneficial from a transit perspective as well as from a development perspective. Uh, BRT came, came in you know a low, 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 low second and uh, traditional transit uh, didn't really register at all in, in terms of future development. So it's, this has been well studied, well researched well uh, well thought out, well designed uh, process that the province uh, I think has been angling to cancel for quite some time and they just didn't uh, bother to tell the city of Hamilton about it. Mayor Fred Eisenberger, thank you so much for your time. Thank you Alan, have a good day. That is the Mayor of Hamilton speaking on Focus Ontario which you can see this weekend on Saturday at 5.30 p.m. and then Sunday again at 11.30 AM in interesting. Did you catch that at the end there? You know, uh, despite all the anger, well, we hope they come to the table and we can talk about this $1 billion. So there's a little bit more going on there behind the scenes, I think, than we're hearing. I think there's some posturing, obviously, on both sides. There's still a billion dollars on the table. What is it they're going to do with that? Electrified buses? Scooters? Scooters are all the rage. Maybe they could just do scooters in the hammer. Could do that. Let's talk real estate, shall we? It's one of those fascinating things. Basically, in the city, we talk about two different things. We either talk about the weather or real estate. And I tell, tell you right now, it doesn't look all that nice outside. It's snowing. So let's not talk about the weather. Let's talk about real estate. This from Post Media from uh, Jason Heath, who is a certified financial planner uh, at Objective Financial Partners in Toronto. He wrote in the uh, Financial Post that... Baby boomers perhaps should start thinking about when they want to unload their real estate, unload their home, because obviously things have been pretty good for boomers out there. Long-time Canadian homeowners have benefited from declining interest rates and increasing home prices, writes Mr. Heath. As baby boomers, currently age 55 to 75, continue to transition to retirement, they will be faced with decisions about whether to and when to downsize or to sell their real estate. And he goes on to say that baby boomers who have benefited from the run-up in real estate prices preceding their retirement may be that much more biased to think that the good times will never end. He goes on to say that... The era of high gains and low rates for homes and for real estate may be over. And as a result, as a boomer, you may want to start thinking about getting out of the market. John Basalis is the president of Realosophy Realty and joins me on the line to talk more about this. Hi, John. Hello. What do you make of that? If you're heading towards retirement, is it time to pull the chute and get out of the market? 
You know, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I have to, I have to confess, when I first read that headline, I, I pretty much dismissed the article because, I mean, I tend not to like this idea of trying to time the market. But when you actually read the article, I mean, I, I actually do feel like the, the financial planner who wrote it had a lot of great advice. And I think really at the core of what he's trying to say is not really just trying to time the market, but to think a little bit more strategically about our real estate decisions um, and what he and not sort of base them on these kind of preconceived ideas. So I do think that there is some some relevance to what he's saying. Obviously, it's not true for everybody, but for certain people, you know, it may be a good time to start thinking about whether it's a time to to sell or not. His central contention that the high growth, low rate era is likely over. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think the low rates we're probably going to still have for some time, but I think in, in for sure in the GTA, I don't think we're going to be seeing. The, you know, house prices have been going up for about 8 to 9% a year, and, and I don't think for over 10 years, and I don't think we're going to keep seeing that. Um, so I do think things are going to cool down a little bit. So, But a lot of this is just based on his, his article, is I, this idea of, you know, making lifestyle decisions and sort of not assuming that price you're going to keep going up 10% a year for the, the sole reason to hold on to your house. So that it might be in circumstances, in certain circumstances, where you want to downgrade or you want to look towards retirement, it might be a good time to take the money and run. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to, to sell a little bit earlier, to invest it somewhere else, so perhaps the better return rather than just you know, um, you know, keeping on to your house and renting it out was one example that he gave. So um, there are some a, a lot of different situations, and I think the whole premise of his article is you know, obviously it's a very personal decision, and a lot of it is based on each person's personal finances and lifestyle decisions that's going to lead them to make a certain decision one way or another. John Pasalis is president of Realocity Realty. Always great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining me. Good to be here. Welcome back to the program. Time to talk about that Life Labs hack with the potential of 15 million customers of Life Labs in Canada having their personal information compromised. Now, Life Labs is a lab testing company. It primarily operates in the provinces of BC and here in Ontario. And Life Labs has confirmed that not only was it hit by a hack, but it also paid a ransom to the hackers to try and get the information back. And put this in perspective, the third largest hack in history, and this one doesn't come anywhere close to the top three. Here's the top three. The third largest in history involved the Marriott Hotel chain that came to light in 2018. That personal information of up to half a billion people who stayed at Starwood Hotels, that was stolen and included Canadian location. The second biggest breach of data hit First American Financial Corporation earlier this year. Personal and financial records of 885 million customers. But internet service company Yahoo continues to hold the dubious record for number one for data breach after reporting two major breaches, the first one affecting 500 million user accounts. That happened in late 2014, but then it also revealed that it had a separate and much larger breach in the early, earlier in that year, and that theft exposed personal accounts and records of 3 billion Yahoo users that existed in August of 2013. Gives you a sense of the size of how big these things could be, but 15 million is nothing to sneeze at. And Life Labs is the largest provider of specialty medical laboratory testing. 
It said that the information compromised could include name, address, email, login, passwords, date of birth, health card numbers, lab test results. The company said it has fixed the system issues and added safeguards to protect customer information. Here's the CEO of Life Labs, Charles Brown, talking about paying a ransom to get that information back. When the data breach happened, we brought cybersecurity experts in. We used them to negotiate. They had experience negotiating with these cyber criminals. We wanted to get the data back because we felt it was in the best interests of our customers. That is LifeLab CEO Charles Brown. On the phone, Ann Kavukian, privacy and data expert. Always great to talk to you, and Welcome to the program. Thank you. A pleasure, Alan. I think, you know, the fact that a hack has happened didn't surprise me. I was somewhat surprised by this open admission of paying a ransom. Is that unusual? It's not unusual anymore, Alan, because ransomware is constantly being demanded in these kind of massive breaches, and companies are paying it because they, they have no other recourse. But I think the more important issue is why weren't there stronger security measures in place to begin with, you don't strengthen security after a massive data breach. You're supposed to do it beforehand, especially when you're dealing with such sensitive health data. Health information, medical data, is the most sensitive type of personal information in existence. Uh, Life Labs should have left no stone unturned to have strongly secured this data before the fact. What are the ramifications for Life Labs beyond obviously paying a ransom and obviously the negative publicity for this? Could there be further actions from a regulatory body? Oh, for sure. So the two regulators, the BC Privacy Commissioner and Ontario's Privacy Commissioner, are jointly investigating this. So they will need leave no stone unturned. But also, there's always to be the first class action lawsuit was already filed yesterday, and I'm sure more will follow because health data is so sensitive. And apart from the health data itself, all of the other pieces of personal information can be used to perpetrate identity theft, open up a bank account, um, obtain a loan, get a credit card, buy a car. There will be massive identity theft that resulting from this. And that can go on for years. This is devastating. Life Labs has said it will continue to pay to monitor the dark web for any of this information popping up there. D- does that give you a- any sort of comfort, comfort at all? No. no, because first of all, they're only offering that protection, identity theft protection for one year, which is ridiculous, because a lot of the time the hackers stay silent. And then a year later, then they start using the data for all kinds of uh unauthorized purposes, of course. So offering that kind of protection after the fact, in my view, is too little too late. They should have employed the strongest security measures before the fact. You want to be proactive, privacy and security by design, bake it into the code in an effort to prevent these measures from arising. I mean, the CEO was interviewed yesterday or today, and when asked, was the data encrypted? He said he didn't know. How can you not know If your data are encrypted, that's one of the strongest forms of um, data protection, security, and we have massive amounts of sensitive data like this at rest, of course you should encrypt the data, uh, plus a number of other measures, firewalls, and all kinds of other security measures that should have been employed. What kind of regulatory penalty should this company face? The strongest imaginable. The two commissioners will do, uh, they're doing the investigation now, and I'm sure they will leave no stone unturned, and they will 
do everything they can. They have order-making power. But unfortunately, even that is probably too little too late. You need to have some measures in place that require, at the very least, a minimum amount of security that must be in place when associated with such sensitive data, such as health data. Ann Kavukian is a data analytics expert, former privacy commissioner in this province. Always great to speak with you, Ann. Thank you so much for being on the program. My pleasure, Alan. Thank you. We are about to take you to Washington for the latest on the impeachment inquiry and what's happening down there and what's expected throughout the course of the day. But let's begin on this side of the border. And Canadian Press has now unveiled its Newsmaker of the Year. Go! News editors and producers across the country have chosen Jody Wilson-Raybould as the runaway winner of the newsmaker title, citing her central role in the SNC-Lavalin affair, a scandal that cost Justin Trudeau two ministers, his most trusted advisor, the country's top public servant, and possibly his majority in the House of Commons. Wilson-Raybould was a star liberal candidate in 2015, but she fell out with the Prime Minister by refusing to order the negotiation of a remediation agreement for SNC-Lavalin as the Montreal engineering firm faced corruption-related charges. Wilson-Raybould ended up resigning from cabinet, though she won re-election in Vancouver and now sits as an independent. Terry Pedro, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. And now she won't leave her offices either. It's like, hey, I'm newsmaker of the year. You can't kick me out of here. I'm going to keep these offices. Have you heard this whole bit where she, uh, the, the liberals now say, uh, yeah, remember when we gave you those offices because you were a minister of the crown? Well, you're an independent now, so we'd like the offices back. And the new Speaker of the House says, you know what, if i got to get the sheriff up in here, I'm going to do it. So we'll see how that all plays out. But let's head south of the border, where impeachment proceedings are underway. Nancy Pelosi speaking to the House Committee, or rather to the full House of Representatives just a short while ago. Reggie Cicchini is our Global Washington correspondent for Global National. Joins me on the line. Hi, Reggie. Good afternoon. Are you, are you settled in for an afternoon of watching some riveting television? Uh, well, look, considering uh, that this debate was three hours delayed, we were settled in a long time ago. All right. So now we've got this three-hour delay because the Republicans tried to say, well, we shouldn't do this at all. And I guess that didn't go anywhere. Essentially, they tried to adjourn within one minute of this starting up, and then we had to go through a vote on the rules. And then eventually, within the last half hour or so, we finally got into the meat and potatoes of what's going to likely be uh, a six-plus-hour debate on these two articles. All right. What's else in this stew? Uh, well, look, the, the big deal uh, that we're that we're talking about today is that this is a playbook that has been used over and over again by both parties. They're standing up right now. They're making their spiels and they're saying the same things that we've heard them say for the last three months, uh, simply to a get the message out to the base, but also on the Republican side to speak to that audience of one who says that they are not paying attention to the proceedings today. Uh, but ultimately, what we're watching is kind of history unfold. And if Republicans can get their way through most of the day, an ability to stall what is going to be an inevitable vote. Before we talk about the inevitability about the vote and how that will time out with the president's rally tonight, let's begin with this six-page letter. What was in that other than just a sort of list of grievances and former tweets? 
Well, what was inside of it was was the president's anger and the president's frustration and probably the president's realization of what's actually happening to not only him, but the legacy of his presidency. I mean, this six page letter was was essentially a lengthy tweet uh, and campaign rally that we have heard for the last several years from the president. And it also laid out some factual inaccuracies uh, and just some kind of uh, inappropriate talking points directed to the Speaker of the House, the president. President using words like unconstitutional, the president using words like obstruction. These are the words that Democrats have been using against the president. Uh, and it led to uh, a good amount of criticism from Democrats uh, based on what the president actually had to say towards uh, the Speaker of the House the day before an impeachment vote. Put this in some historical perspective for me. We keep hearing about, you know, this is only the third president to face this code of sanction. But yet the previous president that faced this sanction, Bill Clinton, it really didn't do that much in terms of his popularity, at least not in the short term. It didn't. It actually gave Bill Clinton uh, a bit of a boost, but the times were different. The impeachment against Bill Clinton was different than the impeachment against Donald Trump. Bill Clinton was uh, facing impeachment for lying to a grand jury about something that really didn't have an impact on the way uh, that he would be perceived to be able to govern. Uh, that's not like today. We have a president who is being impeached for uh, what Democrats argue is putting national security at risk with this uh, you know, ability or question to have somebody interfere with our election. So while Bill Clinton did get a bit of a boost out of this, it's still to be seen whether Donald Trump has gotten uh, or will get a major boost out of this. What we do know is that there are some slight moves of the needle when it comes to how people are seeing impeachment right now. It's kind of down on the approval for it by 5%. It's up for uh, kind of against impeachment by, by 5%. But this is just a minor move on that needle. And we'll have to see kind of post the Senate trial what this actually does to Donald Trump's kind of favorability in the public uh, in the public realm. So hours and hours to go yet of debate. And are we expecting a vote this evening? Is that supposed to time out with that rally tonight? Well, nothing is etched in right now. It's kind of roughed in. The vote was supposed to take place between 6.30 and 7.30, but that's uh, on the assumption that Republicans use no more uh, kind of stalling tactics and delay techniques to be able to drag this out uh, any longer. If they don't, if this goes as is and magic minutes aren't used all that much, we will likely see uh, a potential vote happen as the president is getting on the stage uh, at his rally in Michigan, which is going to provide for kind of one of those historic moments to see a president about to or just impeached speak to a base about how impeachment uh, should be an, or is, in his eyes, an unconstitutional thing. And of course, that will be closely followed because it, it, you know, it is very much of the president's nature to go on the attack and to go on personal attacks as well. And I suspect that we'll see more of that tonight. Absolutely, especially because those are the kind of things that get his uh, base rallied up. It starts those chants around him and it allows him to go off script and kind of feel the moment of what's happening around him. He may take a couple of minutes to forget about this mark on his presidential legacy when this impeachment decide, uh, uh, vote moves forward, but it won't be enough to kind of dampen the mood of the room, and the president is ultimately going to try to take everything that's in that room, that atmosphere about how he feels attacked on the campaign trail and hope that that's what's enough to move that needle in his direction the closer we get to the election. Reggie Cicchini in Washington for Global News. Thank you, Reggie. Always great to have you on the program. Thank you, sir. So, going to be a big day in American politics. We'll be following that here on Global News Radio. I want to tell you this story about a poem that appeared on Twitter from Health Canada back on October the 2nd. 
You may not have heard about this when it happened. So here's what Health Canada tweeted on October the 2nd on their account, at GovCanHealth. Here's the tweet, quote, Jack and Jill did the deed, but they forgot something they need. Should have wrapped it up, oh my! Now both have an STI. And then there was a link to condoms. Right there. I don't know what you think of that, but the internet, the great tubes, pointed out to the government that Jack and Jill are siblings. So, I mean, that is some dirty pool right there. I mean, this isn't the Game of Thrones episode, folks. <laughs> Sheba Siddiqui is my producer, and you say that prior to reading this story, you did not know that Jack and Jill were siblings. No idea. You thought Jack and Jill were BFFs? I never thought. I didn't think they were siblings. Yes, I, got, I thought they were friends going up a hill, you know, to fetch a pill of water. But no. They're siblings, <laughs> so henceforth, they should probably not have to worry about prophylactics. I'm just assuming. Well, they should have wrapped it up. Well, they should have, because now they have STIs, <laughs> and the government of Canada is mighty embarrassed. The Ottawa citizen has a fascinating look at uh, the actual process. So basically, when this, <laughs> this, this tweet goes up, and it's only up for about an hour, and then it gets yarded down real quick. <laughs> Because somebody somewhere went, hey, wait a minute, just a second. And so the Ottawa Citizen actually has a breakdown with a freedom of information request on how that all happened. That's fascinating reading. Uh, Shall we move on to stupid criminals? Please. Police say a thief is now being searched for in California after he stuffed 30 bags of frozen shrimp down his pants. The man took the shrimp from a market in the city of Riverside by entering the store three times in 15 minutes. Police say that each time he went to the frozen food section and concealed shrimp in his pants. There's a joke there somewhere. Is that a shrimp in your pants or are you... Happy to see me. Not no, happy to see not me. Not happy enough. Come on, Rob. Be Is there happier. <laughs> the stolen shrimp had a retail value of more than $500. Security video of the suspect in the market was posted to the police department's Facebook page. The shrimp bandit, Shrimpy, is still at large. <laughs> that is that is going to be an awkward prison nickname when he gets picked up. <laughs> hey, shrimp. What's up? Did they retrieve the shrimp? Not from where he had hidden it. Oh, because... Uh no one wants to eat that shrimp. That shrimp is spoiled. Well, Don't isn't they discounted it in your mouth? Don't you put oh. it in your mouth? Don't you, you know that? This is just plain juvenile, Rob. It's juvenile. This is an adult program. Uh, I, here's Most an, days. My, here's one more for you. This from the New York Times. I did not realize this, but there is a trend out there. The hottest Christmas gift, one of the hottest Christmas gifts you can give or get this year in the United States is an axe. I kid you not. A sort of, you know, retro, hand-painted, beautiful axe. Is this a Game of Thrones thing? No. This, I swear to you, I read this today, I couldn't believe it, but it is true that bespoke Axes are a hot, cool gift. And why is this? It's 
it's because of us. It's because of Toronto. This is the quote from the New York Times. Modern axe-throwing leagues began in 2006 in a backyard in Toronto, slowly developed a cult following over the past three years, have swept across the United States with a wave of new axe-throwing clubs. And so now, people don't, they don't want the Homer Simpson bowling ball for Christmas. They want a custom one. They want an axe. Alan, please don't get me an axe for Christmas. Get you something a little old battle axe, maybe. Uh, have sh- you been axe throwing before? I have not. I've not thrown an axe. I thought you were bragging about it the other day. You- it's not even me, dude. I don't even. <laughs> even I don't no. even know who you're talking. I'm about. shocked, but also not shocked that it originated here in Toronto. And so now this is our contribution to culture as a whole. We have Drake and axes. Six. Thank you so much for spending some time with me this hour.